to SACPA, the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Michelle Day and I will be the moderator um, for this afternoon. Um, just a friendly reminder for those who are first timers, um, we'd like people to silence or turn off their cell phones while the presentation and question period is on. Uh, the washrooms are just located outside this door. Um, and just a friendly reminder that the talk and the question and answer period will be recorded and re available on the SACPA's website. Shot TV will tape SACPA presentations and use um, excerpts from the PowerPoint um, for use of their twice daily 2 and 10 p.m. broadcast. Um, lunch this afternoon is $12. You'll see a basket on the table, so please have one person just kind of monitor the baskets and Annalise will be around to collect the baskets in a short while. Um, the outline in the itinerary is there'll be a 20 to 30 minute presentation from George Takashima, then lunch will be served, and then there'll be a question and answer period after, and we usually wrap up about 1.30. So I would like to introduce um, George Takashima um, his discussion today is Racism Post-Conflict, Reflections on the Japanese-Canadian Experience 75 Years After Being Interned. Um, I've gotten the pleasure to know George Takashima for the last two years. Um, I'm the Executive Director for Nikiyuko Japanese Garden and George has come to give presentations to many, many groups, school tour groups, different community organizations, on the history of Japanese Canadians at the Garden. Um, I had the honor this last summer to go with George Takashima um, for his ghost town bus tour in the, um, in the interior of BC. And for those who would like the opportunity, I know he's doing another ghost town tour um, in this next year. I highly recommend it. Um, so over the past two years, um, I've gotten to know George. Um, I've also realized he has what we call the legendary Japanese smile, and he can get away with anything at the guard. <laughs> so with that, I'd like to welcome George Takashima. Thank you very much, Michelle. What she failed to tell you is that uh, I'm something like the uh, Prairie Provinces. A little windy and a little dry. <laughs> it was uh, in 1877, 140 years ago, that the first Japanese person came to Canada and settled in New Westminster. His name was Manzo Magano, Nagano, and he uh, lived in New Westminster and then later moved to Victoria. By the turn of the century, the 20th century, there were some 15,000 uh, Japanese living on the west coast of uh, uh, BC, with an exception of a handful who had decided not to settle in BC, but rather come to Southern Alberta and settle in Raymond, uh, Colhurst, Fort McLeod, and surrounding areas. 
And that was in 1901 when a group of people from Okinawa had come. And at that time, uh, the Okinawans did not really get along too well with the Japanese from the mainland Japan. And so they decided it would be better to move uh, in, 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 into uh, the other side of the Rockies and settle in southern Alberta. By December of 1941, there were some 23,000 Japanese living in Canada, mostly on the West Coast. And of course, this number includes over 50% of those born in this country. Those who did not live on the West Coast, there were some 4,000 who lived elsewhere, for example, in the Okanagan Valley and Southern Alberta, and there was a group that lived in Toronto, and then others were scattered uh, in other uh, centers like Calgary, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Regina, and so on. December the 7th, a day of infamy, That was when World War II started, because that is when United States of America entered the war, and thus began World War II. Very early in 1942, the Canadian government imposed the War Measures Act on the Japanese people and also labeled them enemy aliens. Not only that, but some of you will know that British Columbia was not Asian friendly. There were hostilities during the decades in British Columbia. Racism was at an all-time high. There are stories about, for example, the uh, Asian riots in uh, Vancouver, which caused a great deal of damage and harm, not only to the uh, Japanese people, but also to the Caucasians in that area. Up to this point, 1941, the Asian people were not, even though they, some, many of them were born in this country, they were not given the right to vote. They were not given the right to any kind of meaningful citizenship. There was outcries and there were a lot of Japs, let's get rid of them, send them back to Japan, that kind of talk. And we know that those who were born in Canada were very um, adamant that they were Canadians first, that they had no loyalty to Japan. But that didn't matter, simply because whether you were born in Canada or in Japan, 
you look like those in Japan. And so in the spring of 1942, um, all of the people living on the West Coast were told to get out. They could only take with them what they could carry, namely two suitcases and a few odds and ends. All of the other things were uh, taken over by the BC Security Commission, which was created for that purpose of looking after Japanese property, whether they be fishing boats, farmlands, homes, trucks, vehicles, anything that they owned. They all came under BC Security Commission. And unknown to the Japanese people, in 1943, all of their possessions were sold by the BC government at low prices. And the money that they got were used to pay for the transportation of the Japanese into the internment camps that were created uh, in order to house these people and also to pay for transportation for those who were sent east of the Rockies to sugar beet fields here in Alberta and in Manitoba, uh, as well as people being sent to Toronto. As I said, racism was rampant towards the Japanese in particular. And some people have said, why do you say that, George? And I'll give you several evidences of this. First of all, the War Measures Act and the labeling of the Japanese as enemy aliens occurred only once, and that was in 1914, when the Ukrainians living in Canada were uh, put under the same situation. War Measures Act imposed upon them, and, uh, uh, and the Ukrainians were called enemy aliens, but they were never sent to internment camps. They never lost their property. In 1939, Canada was at war with Germany and Italy. But you know what? Those Germans and Italians living in Canada and their offsprings were never rounded up. They never lost their property. How come? Why the Japanese? And that tells me that it was a kind of racism that really existed more in BC and that the federal government was only trying to appease the BC government and the politicians there. So about 12,000 were sent into the internment camps and the others were scattered east of the Rockies. These internment camps sprung up overnight. They took some of the mining communities which were called ghost towns. New Denver, Slocan Valley, Sandon, Caslow, 
These were ghost towns. They had their heyday at the turn of the 20th century when mining was at an all-time high, but shortly after 1900, mining dropped. And so people left, and here were these ghost towns with a handful of people living in each of those communities. As well, communities sprung up from open fields. Lemon Creek, Sandon, uh, sorry, Lemon Creek, uh, Popoff, Bay Farm in the Slocan Valley, Roseberry, located just two miles north of New Denver. There was nothing there, and all of a sudden, overnight, shacks were built, and these were places where the intern, where the Japanese were put in as internees. They were communities that exceeded 1,000. And then there were communities like Greenwood, Grand Forks, which handled a number of these internees. The interesting thing is that there was a group of people, many of whom were born in this country, all of a sudden thrust into this God-forsaken place A lot of the younger ones wanted to join the Canadian military, but they were turned down. Those who did succeed in joining had to go to Calgary to sign up and serve in the military. Uh, many of the Canadian born wanted to let the government know in particular that they had no loyalty whatsoever to Japan, that their loyalty was to Canada. But those words fell on deaf ears. Now even before the war ended, there was a movement in the internment camps by uh, the Issei's, they are the people who were born in Japan. And some of the older Niseis, the sons who were born here in Canada at the turn of the century. And they said, you know, when we leave here, if we are not going to be repatriated to Japan, we will need to scatter across the country. We will not establish another Japan town or little Tokyo. There was a feeling because of the large number of people, over 85% who lived on the west coast, and the fact that there was a little Tokyo in Vancouver, the Japanese felt that these were reasons why there was such hostility towards the Japanese. The Japanese were an in-group. By that I mean that, for example, the Issei's, for the most part, did not speak English. They were very comfortable 
using their own language because they lived as a community all along the West Coast. And usually those communities consisted of, consisted of people coming from the same area in Japan. And so they were very comfortable speaking the dialect that they were accustomed to from birth. So now all of a sudden, because of the war, they were just uprooted and they were put into these camps living with people whom they did not know, living with people who came from other prefectures in Japan. And that was the beginning of the destruction of community living as they knew it before the Second World War. So the idea of scattering, and these people didn't realize that the federal government was also thinking along the same lines, that when the war ends, we're not going to let them uh, live in uh, another Japan town. We're going to scatter them if they don't repatriate back to Japan. And that's exactly what happened. My parents and I, for example, ended up living in London, Ontario, where there were very few Japanese. And there were Japanese living in communities that were unheard of. And the only reason why they ended up there was because of jobs, the availability of jobs for the men. And that was a very interesting dynamic because what it did was that people were put into mainstream society. A lot of people were afraid, especially the kids, the young people. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know what would happen to them if they ended up living in a small community like, for example, uh, Lloyd Minister. How will people treat us? How will people look upon us? And for sure, for the first year or two after the war ended and they ended up in these places, there was a bit of a discrimination. But it didn't late take long for the young people to get into the mainstream society. One of the things that the parents had taught their children was you must get an education. If you're going to get anywhere in this country, you need to be educated. And there are stories told of mums and dads working their butts off simply because they wanted to ensure that they could send their kids through to post-secondary education. The first 10 years, 15 years, following the end of the war, that was the scene taken again and again across the country of mums and dads working wherever they could find jobs, making the money and saving the money to send their kids to school. That was number one priority. For the young people, as they got involved in the mainstream, 
They also remembered what their parents had said even before the war ended. Forget about your Japanese-ness. Forget about Japanese culture. Forget about Japanese language. Forget about anything that is Japanese. You've got to in integrate, assimilate into the mainstream society. Many of us, including me, did that. And uh, this caused another problem. A bunch of us were known as bananas. I was a banana. You know what that means? Yeah. Yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. Because we thought like the mainstream society. We integrated very well. We assimilated very well. And we continued to try and prove to Canada that we were loyal Canadian citizens. Many of us young people ended up joining military cadets. I joined military cadets. I joined the Reserve Army. That was in the late 40s, 50s. And furthermore, we had to excel in school. We had to prove that we were not dum-dums. We had to prove that we had the academic capabilities to succeed in whatever the schools can throw at us. When I went through high school in London, I took Latin, I took French. And for some of my fellow students, they thought, wow, how many languages do you speak, George? Well, I ended up saying, well, I, I only speak two because I was not a fluent French speaker, nor could I do anything with Latin but to read. And uh, so these were the kinds of things that we had to struggle with, that we had to face in order to prove that we were good enough to be part of the mainstream Canadian society. The thinking in the late 40s and 50s was just that. You had to prove that you were the best school teacher. You had to prove that you were the best nurse. You had to prove, prove, prove. And that takes a lot of energy, you know. Um, and I remember uh, even when I was working part-time jobs, I had to prove that I was worthy of the job that was given to me. I worked in a bookstore, Wendell Holmes Bookstore in London. And I had to prove that I was the best stock boy in that store while I was going through high school. So those were the kinds of things that we had to face and deal with. The scenery has changed over the years, of course. Um, and a lot of the young people today of Nikkei heritage, that is a Canadian, uh, Japanese Canadian heritage, um, don't remember 
nor have they experienced what we old-timers had experienced during the Second World War. Um, this is one of the reasons why I do the ghost town tour, by the way, is to try and teach people what it was like, what was there during the internment era, and certainly the experiences of the internment era shaped who we are, what we are, and what our descendants are. One other thing that I would add, I, I just got the signal that I'm talking too much. <laughs> so, uh, Michelle doesn't like it when I talk more than she does. Uh, you know, one other thing is this, that of all the Asian groups in Canada, the Japanese has the highest intermarriage rates anywhere in the world. Over 85% of the descendants of the Japanese immigrants prior to World War II have intermarried. And statistics show that in another 20, 25 years, there will, will not be a pure blood Japanese person from the pre-war Japanese era. I myself have intermarried. I'm into my, what, 53rd year, I guess. Um, and so this is another phenomena. You don't find it among the Chinese or the Koreans or other Asian groups, but you do find it within the Japanese community, the intermarriage at that high rate. So with that, I'm going to stop because uh, Michelle is fingering me again, so. <laughs> so thank you very much.